Our first scripture today comes from Deuteronomy chapter 34. Hear God's word for you and for me today. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him the whole land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zor. And the Lord said to Moses, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. He buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his burial place to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired and his vigor had not abated. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. And then the period of mourning for Moses was ended. Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him and the Israelites obeyed him, doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and his entire land, and for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Amen. Our second text is from the Gospel of Matthew, the 16th chapter, verses 13 through 20. Uh, continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. Uh, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, Petra, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open this word afresh to us this day so that we'd be challenged and changed even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen. Uh, we continue on in a, a little sermon series uh, 
as we have just marked our 175th year as a congregation, now in our 176th year of existence, known as the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. And the guiding question for this sermon series as we've passed through this historic threshold uh, is what should a church that continues to endure, what should a congregation that continues to endure in these days be doing? What should this church, what should this congregation be focused on as we begin our 176th year? Uh, this morning, I'd like to spend some time uh, reflecting on leadership, uh, but more specifically, I'd like to focus on the nurture and stewardship of our institutionality as a congregation. Uh, the nurture and the stewardship of our institutionality as a congregation. On Friday morning, I was preparing uh, some of my reflections for today. Katie and I were in our living room having coffee. She was working, I was working. She said, how's your sermon going? And I said, I think it's going pretty well. I'm happy where it's, it's headed. She said, that's good because the title is super boring. Uh, Not only may the title be super boring, but to use the word institutionality in the 21st century, that's dangerous for a preacher because we have collectively either neutral or negative attributions to the concept of institution, right? The notion of institutions conjures up for many people negative attribution. Specifically in our um, context, Confidence in American institutions, government, religious communities, schools, media, corporations, has actually been in decline. Confidence in institutions has been in decline for about three generations. For about three generations. Researchers have been actually studying this since the 1930s. And after the Great Depression, confidence in American institutions across the board actually increased and hit its peak in the mid-1960s. For example, just one example, in 1964, 77% of Americans, 77% said that they trust the government to do the right thing. That's 1964. 15 years later, 1975, that number dropped all the way to 28%. 28% of the people believe that the government would do the right thing. In 2011, the poll cratered. 2011, only 10% of those surveyed said that they had confidence or trust that the U.S. government would do the right thing. It's not just government uh, that has seen uh, its institutional trust and institutional confidence uh, decline. In 2022, Gallup released data from a survey they've been doing since the early 1970s. It's appropriately named Confidence in Institutions, where they ask uh, participants to respond with one of six answers. Uh, it's either uh, a great deal of trust, quite a lot of trust, some trust, very trust, no trust, or no opinion at all. And when it comes to those that that marked either a great deal of trust or quite a lot of trust, this is what the survey revealed across uh, the institutional landscape in our uh, society. Church and religious communities, 31%, down from 68% in 1975. 
Supreme Court, 25%, down from 56 in 1985. Public schools, 28%, down from 62% in 1975. Newspapers, 16%, down from 51% in 1979. Television news, 11%, down from 46% in 1993. And the medical system, 38%, down from 80% in 1975. The bottom line is that institutional trust in the United States today is very, very, very low. Now, when I think about some of the factors that have contributed to this decline in institutional confidence, three things uh, come to mind. I just want to touch on these briefly. First, since the 1960s, uh, there's been a growing critique and concern regarding the prevalent uh, gender, racial, and ethnic homogeneity stitched into the fabric of institutional life in America. To put it another way, over the past 60 years or so, many institutions, whether they be hospitals or corporations uh, or congregations or school boards or city councils, have had to reckon with, at best, their lack of diversity and representation within their institutional orbit, and at worst, they've had to deal with a pattern of intentional exclusion of particular people based on their demographics. Regardless of our opinion of how this reckoning is taking place, it's happening, and it actually contributes to the decline of institutional trust, especially when it comes to institutions that refuse to change and to meet this emerging value of representation and diversity. The second factor that comes to mind is the way that some institutions have wielded their power, that is their money and their influence, to hide or cover up unscrupulous, immoral, or unethical behavior. There are many examples of this that may come to your mind. The thing I'm thinking about uh, this morning is the cover-up or the, the lack of transparency and truth-telling about the abuse of vulnerable people within the orbit of certain institutions. I'm from Pennsylvania, and about a decade or so ago, I'm thinking about the institution of Penn State football, their willful protection of a known predator who was on their coaching staff. I think of the Christian church, not just Roman Catholics, but also Protestant churches, and the many instances where those abused were silenced, were cast out, were marginalized, while perpetrators were protected and moved on to new posts. I think about major corporations that have tried to hide the fact that they have child labor in their overseas factories or that their production practices are bad for the environment. The use of power to cover up and hide has also led to the decline of institutional trust in America. The third factor that, that comes to mind, and this is gonna serve as the launching point to get us into the heart of the message and into our scripture this morning, is that there's a philosophical divide, and you've heard me talk about this before in, in different ways, but there's a philosophical divide or a tension between the, the why uh, of institutional life. Why does an institution exist? And it's the reality of, at its very best, why an institution exists on one hand, and on the other hand, this hyper-individualism and obsession that we have in our culture with self-actualization. 
So why institutions exist in the first place and our hyper-individualism and obsession with self-actualization. Here's what I mean. Institutions, right, at their very best, in the ideal, right, in the ideal, exist to form people who share a common commitment or belief or mission, to help form them and equip them to accomplish that mission. That's what institutions do at their very best. It transcends the individual for something greater than the one for the sake of something beyond the one for the sake of the whole. As we approach the quarter mark, it's hard to believe we're approaching the quarter mark of the 21st century and in the milieu of this hyper-individualism, uh, what's interesting, what's happened is, is that the individual is now the mission. I'm the mission, right? I'm the center, I'm, I'm the, the focus, my self-actualization, my, my, my uh, self-satisfaction, my uh, fulfillment, my happiness is the goal. I'm the mission. My happiness, my fulfillment is the mission. I wanna form myself and shape my life based on what I want, rooted in my own sense of autonomy, singularly focused on one question, what's good for me? Institutions, it's interesting what's happened. Institutions may still have a role to play in this hyper-individualist society in as far as the individual, right, will, will take certain elements from institutional life and participate to a certain extent as long as it feeds or promotes my fulfillment or it promotes my happiness or my project of self-actualization. Here's a, an example I've used from time to time. You all remember the Sony Walkman? It was weighed about 20 pounds. It would be on your hip. Some of you remember this. And you have to put a tape in, and it was really advanced when the tape got to the end and it auto-reversed. That was, that was really cutting-edge technology. Then the iPod came along, right? And all of a sudden, you didn't have to have the discipline to listen to a whole album. You no longer had to hear the whole story. People used to write music, right, for an album to tell a complete story. Now, you have the iPod. I know I'm dating myself a little bit, but you have the iPod, and you can create a playlist for the younger generations. It's like Spotify. You can create whatever playlist you want to. If you want to hear these songs, you don't have to. You can just listen to the songs that you want to listen to. So I participate in this institution, not because of what I give to it, but what I get out of it. And I'm going to take a little bit here and a little bit there. David Brooks, the great writer, uh, in a book about 20, 25 years ago, talked about this as flexidoxy. Flexidoxy. Like, I'm going to be flexible. And, and here's what's happened with institutions, right? Institutions are like, well, we have to create, I used this image uh, last week, we have to create a buffet that people want to eat at. And, and what happens is that the institution then becomes about the individual's fulfillment and thus loses the center that holds it together the mission that transcends individual life. Of course, most institutions have never really been in the self-actualization business. But now, and just think about churches, how do we get people to come in? Well, we gotta, we gotta in, meet their individual needs. Gotta have a good children's ministry, a good youth ministry, gotta be a halfway decent preacher, good music. We gotta meet their needs for self-fulfillment. Let's do a little theology, it's about time. 
little ecclesiology. That's what we talk about when we talk about the church and a little bit of biblical interpretation. A congregation that continues to endure in this generation should steward the church's institutionality. And I know the word institution is like a dirty word today. And I know we have a lack of confidence in institutions. But I want to suggest to us as a congregation that part of our role as we endure in our 176th year is to steward our institutionality. And so when I say institutionality, what I'm referring to is the way in which the church as an institution is in the business of making Christians. It's in the business of discipleship, right? It's forming people to humbly follow Jesus Christ. The church doesn't exist to help individuals self-actualize. Instead, the church exists to actualize, by the grace of God, the mission of Christ. That's why we exist. Not self-actualization, but the actualization of the mission of God. We're a conduit for Christ to actualize himself in and through our faith and our life together. In the Gospel of Matthew, the 16th chapter, after Simon confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus speaks to Simon and he renames renames him. God has a habit of renaming people, making people new. And Jesus says to Simon, I tell you, you are Peter, Petra. That name literally means rock. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Sometimes the most obvious thing is the most important thing, and I think that stands to be true this morning in this text. This is not Peter's church. This is Christ's church. On you I will build my church. It's his body. It's Christ's community. It's Christ's people. It's Christ's institution. In our community of faith, we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and the head of the church, and no one else. I I shared lunch uh, this past Wednesday with my Midtown clergy group, uh, and we invited a man by the name of Sean Smith to join us. Reverend Smith uh, has been the senior pastor of the New Horizon Baptist Church for 21 years, and he was recently appointed to Mayor Dickens' staff as a senior advisor uh, for the religious community in Atlanta. He told me a story about one of his uh, mentors, a name that may be familiar to those of you who've been around Atlanta for some time. Uh, His mentor was Cameron Alexander. Uh, And Reverend Alexander was a leader uh, in our city, not just a religious leader, but a civic leader. Uh, He pastored the 12,000 member Antioch Baptist Church. Now before Sean was licensed, this was many years ago, he was part of a cohort of uh, young would-be pastors under uh, the tutelage of Reverend Alexander. Now, like any good mentor with one-to-be preachers, uh, he would give them the opportunity to preach in the pulpit at the Antioch Church from time to time. Now, for context, the practice here, when we set the preaching schedule, we are looking out anywhere from six to 12 months. Dan wants us to do 12 months so we can prepare the music. But six to 12 months, we know what the theme is gonna be and we know who the preacher is gonna be. That's not how Reverend Alexander did it. Sean told me that if Reverend Alexander wanted you to preach, he would call you and let you know no sooner than 11 p.m. on Saturday night. (laughs) He would ask you to preach the next day. I mean, could you imagine that practice? 
not knowing that you're gonna preach until just hours before the Sunday morning services? Well, when these uh, mentees asked Reverend Alexander why you do it uh, this way, because it's really stress-producing, he said two reasons. He said, there's two reasons I I do it this way. He said, first, it's to fulfill what's written in 1 Peter 3.15, that you should be ready to give an account of the hope that lies within you. And he said, the second reason, which is equally important, he says, I don't want you to have any time to invite your mommy or daddy to church that Sunday. I don't want you to have any time to invite your brothers or sisters or your seminary colleagues or your friends or your neighbors or your girlfriend or boyfriend. I don't want you to invite anybody. I don't want the church pews be filled with people who come to see you because it's not about you. It's about God. It's about God and God's mission. I think about Moses in our text from Deuteronomy, the text that Katie read for us this morning. I don't know about you, but I always feel a little bit bad for Moses. When I hear this passage, my heart goes out to him. After all, he led the people out of slavery, remember? He led them while they complained and they doubted and when they were spiritually mischievous in the wilderness. And here he is, right, in this story. He's on the precipice of the promised land. He's right there, he can see it, but he dies on the other side of the river. He doesn't get to go in. And and that's a tough pill to swallow. But I'd like to suggest to you that leaders know that it's not about them. Leaders know that it's not whether or not they get the chance to cross the river. Leaders know that they are called to be faithful to the mission. It wasn't about Moses' fulfillment or his actualization. It wasn't about his happiness. It was about the mission of God to do his part to bring the people to where God wanted them to go. See, leaders know the part they play, right? Leaders, authentic leaders know the part they play. They know that they rally people around something bigger than themselves, They don't rally the people around a cult of personality. That's not leadership. Not around individual charism. That's not leadership. A leader's primary concern is not about their own actualization. It's not about their own happiness. It's not about their own fulfillment. It's not about what we see in so many spheres, using the institution to create celebrity. That's not what leaders do. Leaders' primary concern is the mission. It's the mission. It's the thing that is bigger than themselves. And so I wanna close with this. The church does not exist to help you or me self-actualize. The church doesn't exist to help us promote ourselves or to be happy or to be a better version of you. The church exists to actualize the mission of Christ. That's what we're here for. And that's the heart of our institutional life. That's the heart of our institutional life. And that's what we're called to steward and nurture and curate. This acknowledgement that it's not about us, but it's about God. And that truth should shape our ministry and our life together. And that's why the invitation we offer to our members and non-members alike is not to come be part of the church so you can find happiness or fulfillment. Not not to come... uh, because you're gonna get your best life now. 
The invitation we offer to our members and non-members is to come to be a part of what Christ is doing in our midst. To be a part of what Christ is doing and making us new and the city new and this state new and this nation new and this world new and to participate in that. To come be a part of something that's bigger, so much bigger than just us. It's not about me. It's about God. And so may we be leaders and may we be an institution that keeps this truth at center, even as our congregation, by God's grace, endures. Amen.